0: Hey guys! Welcome to another episode of the Latina She Served podcast. Before we get started, I wanted to go over a couple of show notes. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and Instagram at Latina She Served. And I have news, guys. As you know, I created, produced, and edit this podcast. I am a one-woman show. Yes, I do it all. And now you can support me. You can support me by signing up as a Patreon. Look up Latina She Served and I will be including the link in the show notes. Now about today's episode, a couple of trigger warnings here. We did discuss the death of a Marine. So if you are sensitive to that, please um, just skip this episode. You know, you only you know what's good and what's not good for your mental health. So you have been warned. Nick is a Marine Corps veteran who decided to bike across America in honor of Corporal James Curry, a Marine who died from an accidental overdose. His mission is to bring mental health awareness to the military he definitely felt like there were some things that the military could have done better. And, you know, we definitely discussed that in depth in this podcast. So, you know, just keep a year out for that. It, get, it gets heavy. It really does get heavy. Uh, he was adopted from Russia and we discussed his story overcoming adversity and where he is today. So, enjoy today's episode. Today, my guest is Sergeant Nick Novotny. He is out of the Marine Corps now, but he just completed a bicycle ride across America in honor of Corporal James Curry. Did I say that right, Nick? Curry?
1: Yes, you did. Yeah, Corporal James make, Curry.
0: Thank you, and the, he had a GoFundMe, and a lot of the proceeds were divided to different funds. One went to the Winter Warrior Project. One went to TAPS. One went to the VFW, and then a portion went to the Curie family. Nick, it is such an honor to have you on the podcast today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much.
0: Let's start from the beginning. Where are you from?
1: So, all right the the, the long story short is here. <laughs> I was actually so I was adopted, and I was born in Russia. Uh, but I came to the United States in '97. I think I just looked the part. I don't necessarily consider <laughs> myself like a real Russian though, because my family we didn't they they obviously didn't have the same roots. But yeah, I primarily but I grew up in New Jersey my whole life basically until obviously. oh what part? Uh, actually, New Atlantic City, New Jersey.
0: Cool, cool. I used to draw in New Jersey in Red Bank.
1: Red Bank. Actually, it's funny. So before the ride, uh, um, or before the before the ride started, I was living, um, in Highlands. If you know where that's at, that's in the same general area. Red Bank's probably like fifteen minutes away from Highlands, New Jersey. Small world. Small world. Yeah, it is.
0: So you grew up in New Jersey, and then what made you join the Marine Corps?
1: Um, you know, I think everyone's got a unique story how they did it. I mean, the one thing I can honestly say, and I'll say this to the grave, you know, I didn't go to the recruiter and say I wanted to be, uh, infantry or anything like that. I I literally told the guy like, Hey man, like, I obviously not sure where things are going to, uh, how things will end from here, but I want something that's going to translate to some kind of like real skill. Um, I ended up getting an Intel contract. Um, and I kind of joined because, you know, at the time I was in high school and, you know, I think like a lot of us, you know, I wasn't the most focused. Um, I didn't really even, even really have much of a vision at the time of what I wanted to do. I mean, sure. College seemed like the standard route, but even then I just wasn't that motivated in in high school. I didn't really get the best grades. Um, so I wasn't really leaning towards that way. And just because I didn't have like a study, I didn't have like something that was like making me like, okay, I'm going to do this. So, I do remember, I think it was senior year, um, a recruiter was in high school as they usually are at like the bigger high schools. Mm -hmm. And it was actually one of our game days. I played football just for one year. I mean, I was really no good, but I played for one year just for the heck of it. And he comes over to me and he's like, oh, you like to hit stuff, right? And I'm like, you know, yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, he was cool enough. And, you know, I gave him a piece of paper and it was just like, you know, hey, like, what are you looking for out of life? Like, what do you want? And, um, you know, some people might see that as a little bit cheesy. And I did it first, too. But I did keep it um, like in my room somewhere for a while. Uh, it wasn't until a few months later that I kind of felt uh, followed through with it. And at the time, my my then alive grandfather, uh, he was a Korean War veteran, and I actually looked up to him a lot, and we had a great relationship. And I always told him when I was younger I was going to join the military. And then I guess as the way things progressed, you know, I thought the Marine Corps was better than the Navy because he was in the Navy, <laughs> uh, you know. And so that's kind of how it started. And I went to the recruiting office and um, I don't I think it was May of 2014. I did the DEP program thing. And then nine months later or maybe eight or nine months later, I ended up uh, leaving for boot camp.
0: Wow. How did your parents feel about this?
1: Um, my parents were super supportive. I mean, I think my mom was like any other mom, you know, of course concerned. Uh, and then I think like any other dad out there, uh, he was excited. I think he was more excited to get me out of the house and, uh, you know, get some, uh, get some tougher skin, I guess was what the way he looked at. It. And my parents have always been very uh, pro military and stuff like that. I mean, like I said, my, um, my grandfather on my mom's side, you know, he was a Navy veteran. I think my mom's brother was in the air force. Uh, actually it's funny on my dad's side. Um, I'm like the first one to join the military with at least a Novotny, you know, la- last name. So I was the first generation um, service member.
0: That's awesome. Me too. Yeah, I'm that... the first one in my family.
1: What did you? What did your family say?
0: Oh my gosh, it was just a struggle with my mother because you know, being Latina, it's a, it's like a cultural shock for her. Like she expected me to stay at home until I got married, and I was like, no. Look at, I am you know, getting you went against out the grain it's
1: funny. I my, did.
0: My, I did.
1: My ex was um Hispanic and yeah I can say just from a little bit of experience there like meeting some of her family and you know stories she tells me it is it's a whole different ball game um when you're coming from a Hispanic family like they don't they don't play games but at the same time though I definitely noticed they're a lot more tight knit um and, yeah, than that's a lot true. of other at least culturally families, just from my perspective, because I met, you know, a ton of different people in the Marine Corps and I have two friends of mine. One's, they're both actually Hispanic too. One's in, from Old Bridge, New Jersey, the other one's in LA and it's like the same, it's the same thing. I mean, their families are super tight, but at the same time, super strict about certain things. Not so much on the boys, it seems, but definitely for the, uh, for the women, they're definitely a little bit tougher on.
0: Yeah, but they definitely came around and I think, you know, I've been in for 14 years now so i think by now reserves
1: okay that's dead that's yeah this still counts i've heard a lot of reservists say that it's almost like being active sometimes because they'll
0: honestly i did five years active and then have been a reservist ever since i got out of active duty and honestly i did more overseas exercises as a reservist than i did active duty
1: (laughs) so I have like one reservist friend, but he's told me the same thing. He's like, I should have just committed to being active duty because he said it's like it feels like it's the same thing in terms of how busy and the kind of commitment they were looking for out of him, you know?
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I still, you know, it, it feels nice to like, you know, wear the uniform, go to work, do Marine Corps things. But then, you know, culturally, there's things have changed
1: oh oh a lot, yeah. right I'm sure, so yeah. Yeah.
0: i i also feel that like okay well that's over now back to my civilian job
1: yeah, <laughs> you know that's, until that's, next that's, time but that's nice though because you kind of get a little bit of a balance i mean i'm sure it's true, i
0: do i'm well, sure my husband is still active duty so i get to you know hear what he goes through and i'm like oh yeah well so you know, I don't it's have funny, to deal with that <laughs>
1: I actually I went to the MSG program. Uh, Sadly, though, I did not I did not make it through um, board week. um, And I ended up going to Hawaii. So I guess it wasn't a complete loss. I mean, so for me, I I completely lucked out. I ended up staying in Hawaii for, you know, the remaining seven months through Mm. probably the worst of the pandemic. I mean, obviously, the job market took a massive hit. Um, Everything was just was just tough. And obviously, Hawaii was actually the place to be at the time. I mean, there was no tourism. We had some ba- we had some rules on the base as far as like, you know, you couldn't go here or there. But, you know, um, between I one, mean, right
0: Hawaii now. is has always been very strict, though, with their health protocols, even with their like pet quarantine there. They have always been really, really very strict.
1: They they were insanely strict. I mean, if anyone, you know, listening, you know, to get an idea of how bad it was for pure time, I mean, they actually um, made it illegal to go on the beach to hike. Um, to really do anything. Um, the only time you were allowed, they obviously, since the government, you know, hasn't found a way to own the water, they mm-hmm. said that you could like swim, right? Or do like water activities, but you couldn't lay on the beach. Um, that was during the height of the pandemic. They, they did that. I'll be so, honest like, with you. what's I mean, the
0: consequence? Like, would you uh, get arrested? I mean, well, would well, you get a ticket?
1: Pre- they were getting pretty crazy. I mean, like, I mean, I think they chilled out with it before, but I, I'm I'm not joking. I want to say for hiking and these, some of these violations, they were threatening like five thousand up to $5,000 fine if you Oof. were caught. So I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, you know, with Hawaii being at like, I mean, almost basically half military, half, you know, locals, mm-hmm. um, you know, they weren't trying to, you know, destroy the local population during that time. So I know they were mostly giving out citations and of course you like everything with the pandemic, there were so many, uh, different ideas flowing around. So obviously cops, right didn't feel like giving out tickets uh, to their own people that were living there. But either way, the, the rules were crazy. I mean, the, the bars were closed for, you know, the first four to six months. I mean, you couldn't get food at half the places. It was it was crazy for we allowed off base for let's say, quote unquote, essential activities. So I mean, I was frequenting, you know, fast food places and everything. essential activities. But you know, people were still, you know, silly about it. I mean, we had a guy who actually got NJP to a pretty high level. I, 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 I want to say, I don't know if it was regiment level, but it was definitely higher than company level uh, for a COVID violation. And of course, I sort of felt bad for him. But then I was like, you know, why would you come back on base at 430 in the morning or three or whatever? Like, what were you what was your what was your plan there? Because Hawaii is like, you know, everything at by eight, nine o'clock. There's nothing open except like Taco Bell and McDonald's.
0: Oh, oh, quick question before I forget. You said that you were adopted from Russia. How old were you when you were adopted?
1: Um, I was, uh, I think either turning, I think I was already two or about to turn three. It was interesting. So if I'm being really truthful about it, you know, they didn't actually have an approximate age because it's actually pretty common, you know, at the time anyway, or even now, you know, if you adopt children from Russia, for whatever reason, the way the orphanage system works, a lot of the times the children aren't really exactly aged. I don't know if that's more of a, an organization thing or just how the kids are dropped off. They don't really have much, you know, record keeping, I guess. But I was aged and I'm sure it's pretty accurate given, you know, the per via whatever the, the sp- particular skill set of these pediatricians, you know, I'm sure, and mm-hmm. especially at that two to three age group, you know, it's probably pretty easy to age them. So yeah, I was, you know, about to be a toddler or whatever between two and three.
0: So do you, you don't have any memories of Russia?
1: No, zero recollection. I mean, I
0: <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about uh, Corporal James Curry. Okay. T- tell us about him.
1: So, um, you know, with James, um, I actually met him after I was in MSG. Basically, uh, I guess you could say washout. I mean, of course, you know, the the real feelings were, you know, getting to Hawaii. I mean, of course, now talking about it. It's I now- mean,
0: but in all honesty, for context, MSG school is literally one of the hardest schools. It, it, it in is. The Marine
1: Corps. It, it is a tough school going into a new duty station and kind of being the MSG in my mind failout. Uh, it was a little bit mentally kind of tough, you know, because I was in a pretty good spot going to MSG. I felt, you know, super motivated, super ready, super excited, and it didn't work out. And it's tough, you know, in life when things don't work out the way you plan them to, especially if it's something that you, you know, kind of had your heart set on, you're kind of like wondering, okay, why did that not work out? You know, I think I put my best effort forward. Um, So going to Hawaii, you know, and I was a brand new guy. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've been in the Marine Corps like maybe two, two and a half years at that point, but that's still nothing. I had no deployments, no real experience yet. And even in an Intel job, you know, I really didn't have much experience. So I came to Hawaii in the October of 17. Shortly after uh, was when I met James, you know, being the new guy again, you know, you literally know nobody. Um, I just remember I was on duty. Of course, it's one thing, though, no matter how new you are to a unit, trust me, they know somebody knows who you are. The person who makes the duty roster knows who you are. So they made (laughs) sure to get me on duty the first month I was there and, um, you know. I was wondering how Marines are. People would be surprised, even in Intel units, uh Marines like to drink and have a good time. Uh, I think that's across the board, no matter what your job is. And I had met James on duty and he, at the time he was just a random guy to me. But he came over to me and he was like, hey man, like, you know, just kind of small talking, you know, knew that I was kind of newer to the unit and you know, asked me about like where I'm coming from. And of course I had kind of a unique story. I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I'm actually coming from Quantico. I was at the MSG school and things didn't work out. Now I'm here. So we got in a good conversation there and then it kind of led to him, you know, just being really, uh, actually surprisingly nice. I mean, you know, you know, being a Marine yourself and being surrounded by Marines, how Marines, um, um, how do I say this? You know, their demeanor, right. They're the Mm -hmm. way they act and the way they're always reacting to people. You know, they're always kind of tough and rigid and, you know, whatever. Uh, James was kind of the complete opposite, you know, being a new guy, right. Even though I was a corporal that you still think there's some weird, like, you know, tension in the air like oh who's this new guy but James was more like oh do you need anything do you want anything uh, I know at the time he didn't have a car then but he was going to walk to the PX which was like a half a mile away from where our unit was and I was like no man I mean you're fine I don't need anything but I was shocked that you know uh, just a random guy that didn't that was talking to another random guy was uh, like just so nice to me and open and you know from that moment on um we just obviously all of our interactions were always positive and it was always lighthearted I mean James was definitely the kind of marine who was always with the uh you know the fun group of marines the marines that were always had partying or having fun and he just everyone seemed to know who this guy was that was the first uh like impression i got of him like everybody mm-hmm. knew him and everyone liked him so that was the first impression i got of james
0: talk about making an impression right
1: yeah no and it and it really is true i mean people who don't understand marines man that's how they are like they are tough they're rigid they always got this chip on their shoulder it's like they're always on guard like 24 7 whenever you talk to most of them especially being a new guy
0: yeah oh my god yeah that definitely makes a difference brought up the bike ride how how did that get started how did that idea get started
1: it's funny how you know everything kind of progresses right there's always we have all heard this like saying that like you know every decision you've ever made leads you to where you're at right now um, this exact very moment, even doing this podcast right now, I mean, not, this, we would have never even crossed paths in any way, had this bike ride not happened. Um, so I guess leading up to the bike ride, I had got out of the Marine Corps last October. Um, it's funny, actually a few days ago, a year ago was my actual year mark of being out of the Marine Corps. So it's crazy how much, wow. time yeah, it's crazy how that a year has already gone by. Um, but, um, you know, the ride idea, you know, it's funny, it, it creeped into my head, Shortly after I got out of the military, I actually had my car shipped from Hawaii to L.A. I stayed with two friends of mine who one was a veteran Marine, too, but the other was an active duty one. He was uh, actually at a reserve station, too. He was supply as well. Um, He was over at Seal Beach. And um, I stayed with him for a few weeks waiting for my car. I drove across America back home to New Jersey. Um, shortly after I had, um, a job that I was doing and then I had a contracting job for just two weeks. It was just for uh, a military exercise that I was a role player in. And so I got, a, got done with that started my other job. And then around really the end of December, January, I kind of had this idea, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. Like, I think every veteran listening to this can kind of relate to this. I think no matter who you are, um, And sadly, no matter how traumatic your experiences were while you're in, you still had, you know, either close friends or good memories that you kind of took with you. So coming out now, I was kind of like, kind of, um, I was reestablishing who I was as a person, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because I wasn't Nick the Marine anymore. I mean, yeah, you're always a Marine for life. I get that. But like, you're not doing that anymore. You're not a Marine. You're not putting on the- A hundred
0: percent. Yes.
1: Even your friends now, like, you know, that's the biggest thing that people, nobody talks about is, you know, your friends that you had beforehand- it's not to say they're not your friends, but they're not your friends in the same way anymore because you had I had almost a 6 year gap where we really didn't hang out or spend time with each other. And sadly, you know, we had less things in common or we just didn't you hang out. You outgrow
0: some friends. Yeah, you
1: do, you outgrow. Yeah. And then on top of that, you know, they just have different priorities, so like, you know, you're, you're you you are not a priority as much in their life, and that's okay. That's just the natural way of things, but um, I kind of thought about a couple of things. I thought about how much I missed the Marines, uh, from my unit and just different Marines I interacted with even along the way. And I was actually kind of thinking about James a little bit because, you know, something I didn't mention, um, cause we really didn't talk too much about his passing. Um, you know, when he passed and it all happened, you know, very quickly, um, to give people a backstory, uh, James actually, uh, at least the way they ruled it was an accidental overdose. Um, he drowned in his own vomit. Um, and obviously, you know, I'm not here to tell people what was in the toxicology report, but whatever substances were found. So, I mean, obviously that could, you know, lead you to a, B or C, but the reality is, uh, he was suffering, you know, with some serious mental health issues and obviously didn't feel comfortable enough to really find a viable, uh, resource to really help him. I mean, in, in a lot of ways too, he actually did initially try to get help through the SAP sapper. What am I thinking of this, uh, substances abuse counselor. Um, uh, yeah, without airing out anyone's dirty laundry, you know, that mm-hmm. just didn't really work out essentially. So he ended up kind of dealing with it more on his own. Um, so the night he passed, uh, was May 2nd or maybe it was actually May 1st. Cause I think May, th- or no, it was May 3rd. May 3rd was the actual day he passed. Obviously all that happened and all those memories kind of flooded back to me for some reason. I'll, I'll be really honest. And really, was no-
0: While you were on active duty.
1: Yeah, I was actually on active duty. I was uh, in our battalion at the time because I didn't leave uh, my battalion until September of 2020. And he passed in May of 2020. Um, But, you know, fast forward to like, you know, December, January timeframe, when all these things were kind of hitting me again, what kind of happened with James was, you know, he didn't really have this like proper going away, it felt. I mean, I felt like it was a sort of an inhumane response on, on our command and kind of on certain key leaders that I think should have had a better response than what they did. And that effect or lack of effect, I guess you could say, or lack of response had a huge effect on the entire battalion. I mean, really for a few weeks, it was very somber. I mean, you know, tally in COVID at the Italian, everyone's either remote working or it's only half, you know, we're at half force or whatever. You know, people really were, it was mopey. It was really bad, even in the barracks, because, you know, he was one of those key figures in the barracks who was always either having a good time or, you know, something that all people didn't understand about James if you were someone who wasn't having a good time, right, because, you know, there's a lot of people that are going through things, you know, multiple times I saw James firsthand or through secondhand stories of just bringing someone out there with him, whether it was a random person or just a person that you wouldn't think he'd hang out with. Um, that's also part of who James was as a person. You know, He was not someone that really let rank or whatever kind of weird thing you had going on determine how he would view you as a person. He viewed you as you, the way you were to him. You know what I mean? That's what I think set James apart from a lot of Marines that I met. So I guess I kind of like was going down that, I don't, I guess memory lane or whatever. And I was thinking about this, about what happened to him and all the Marines I missed. And, you know, I kind of thought like, you know, maybe something positive can come out of it. Cause even myself, I was struggling. Cause you know, it's like, I felt like all my friends that I had, I no longer had anymore. You know, they're all different, different ways, different duties. How,
0: um, how did you find out that he had passed?
1: Um, you know, the night it happened, it was pretty crazy. Um, uh, it's another story that ties into it. Obviously it's not, I'm not trying to minimize the story. That's the main story, but I had a friend of mine who I was, uh, doing a lot of stock and option trading with. And he and I grew close through actually our first deployment together and just, you know, stuff like that. And just being, you know, friends in the barracks basically. And, uh, he and I were trading a lot together and actually two to three days before this happened, we both lost a significant amount of money. I mean, I'm talking like collectively between both of us, we lost a hundred thousand dollars. Um, It was pretty insane. And obviously there's ripple effects with that. Now, granted, we made money off the stock market, right? So we wasn't like 60 or $40,000 of our own money. It was money that we kind of accrued through trading. But regardless, that was kind of the sequence of events. So it was just crazy what was happening. And then two days after that, I remembered it was probably seven, eight o'clock at night we were in the barracks, just hanging out with, uh, with, with my, I was just hanging out with my friend and I was getting a bunch of, you know, texts and Snapchats. And I'm like, Hey, like, why is NCIS here? Hey, why is, you know, PMO here? Hey, why are all these people? Why is the command deck here? And I'm like, oh I God. mean, I don't know people. I have no idea. I'm not like out there investigating. And you know, it, it, it's one of those things, you know, not to like say it was like a movie, but it almost felt like it. Right. Cause the, the atmosphere kept getting like thicker and thicker. Like you, you realize something was wrong. Like, and it kept getting more pervasive and more pervasive as every like, you know, minute passed by all of a sudden, you know, what was one person outside looking around was 10 people, 15, 20 people. And before you know it, I mean, it was no joke. Every person almost outside of it was outside their barracks room. And I was like, all right, something's really wrong. And then I had a text from a friend of mine who was actually James's not roommate, but I guess you could say sweetmate mate or whatever, uh, yeah. you know, or neighbor or for lack of better terms, yeah. he said, Hey, you know, there's a body bag that just left James's room. And I was like, you know, obviously you, it's one of those texts that hits you so hard in the face, you know, things kind of pause for a second. You're like, you're trying to process what they just said. And yeah. without putting anything together, I'm like, do you think it was him? And, you know, he kind of knew just from knowing that he didn't have a roommate And that's when everything started swirling around. You know, the communication started getting crazy. Everyone's throwing around ideas. And then, you know, shortly after that, I think by nine or 10 o'clock, you know, it was pretty much confirmed because NCIS had to come through there. They had to, to conduct a... I don't know, some sort of initial investigation and look through his room. And that's when things had to happen, right? Because then they had to start questioning people that were there. I think at one point they were trying to make sure that I think it was just about getting the information clear, like what's really going on. Because first off, this could have been a kid from a different battalion that nobody knew, not to say that wouldn't be as tragic, but that could have just because we frequently had that. We had a lot of Marines from other battalions come to our barracks because whatever, everyone's friends with everybody. But yeah, I mean, it happened so quickly. I don't think anyone really had a time to even formulate anything. So and then NCIS was actually conducting interviews that night. Like, really, they were talking to people like, hey, have you seen James in the last, you know, 24 hours, 48 hours? And it's it was happening so fast that nobody knew how to process it. And then it really got bad. You know, then you had people at, at the Lanai, you know, they were kind of like crying and embracing each other. And you know, I'm just kind of looking around like, what is going on right now? Like, it really just, it felt like a complete break in the system. I was like, what the heck? And, you know, it was sad because I actually got back from my second deployment in January of 2020 and James and I became actually a little bit more closer. I mean, to be honest with you, you know, after that first interaction, our interactions were few and far in between after that, just because we had different company assignments. I was on a different deployment cycle than he was. Mm-hmm. But when I got back from my second one, he was actually in a workup to leave um, that summer. And I got moved to the S3T. And for anyone listening who doesn't know what the S3T is, it's essentially just like, you know, just training and doing certain things for the command that involve training and other procedures. So I was working with their platoon um, from the more uh, technical side of our job to, you know, kind of help create training scenarios and facilitate exercises that were in-house. So I came, you know, more close with him through that way and his whole platoon. And, you know, that's how he and I became a little bit closer. So it really did hit me like a wall of bricks. I was like, it doesn't even make any sense. You know, how did, how could this happen? Right. And obviously no, nobody knew what led up to that. I mean, it just, sadly, it was just so tragic and quick that, you know, everyone's just trying to get the facts straight. All right. So anyway, to I know that was a long explanation, but I feel like that was important to kind of get out.
0: Oh, no, absolutely.
1: Yeah. So essentially, you know, bringing it back to now, you know, end of 2020, essentially, all these thoughts came back to my head. And I was thinking about James. I was like, you know, honestly, maybe there is a better way to, you know, showcase who he was. Like, I mean, you know, sadly, yeah, the way he died, you know, overdosing on, you know, or drowning in his own vomit and, you know, other things in his system, you know, it's not like, you know, you don't want to have someone remember for the way they left, left us. It's for how they made us feel when we were around them. That's who they actually were, not how they ended. Um, so I thought about it and you know, the idea of the biking thing came from two guys from my hometown. Actually. Uh, I know both of them. I knew one through basketball that I uh, played with another guy was in a, uh, in my high school. They were both a year behind me in high school and they actually biked across America for respective charities in 2020. So during, you know, c- during COVID, you know, when mm. you couldn't do anything. Yeah. And I was kind of uh, or actually sorry, 2019, I guess it was not 2020. Um, they did it together, and they didn't do much training. They didn't do anything. They just did it together. And I was actually pretty amazed because you know, when I thought about that initially, I was like, wow, it's kind of crazy. Just, that's
0: that's you know, impressive.
1: Like, yeah, like which riding your bicycle, you know, a casual. Nah. To be honest with you, I met people that were 40s, 50s, 60s. Allegedly, out of one of the hostels I stayed at uh, in Oregon, there was a guy who was in his 70s, that was there. Uh, a that's few amazing. Days.
0: Every Before time I, I see ride. like uh, marathon runners that are definitely like, you can tell they're like in their sixties or seventies. I'm like, how? <laughs> tell me your secret.
1: You know, I mean, I that's I don't impressive. Know. I mean, it, I'm pretty sure uh, Forrest. What did Forrest Gump say? You got to just, I don't know, something about he said something about running. running, and I feel like you can relate <laughs> the same thing to biking. You, know, if you just keep doing the same thing, like eventually you're going to get good at it, or at least better at it than where you were when you started. Mm-hmm.
0: So you are it basically the idea is in your head of doing this bike ride in right. honor of Corporal James Curry because you kind of want to just get closure, I guess in a way.
1: I wanted close I mean I, I I it's you know to be honest with you like this is not like me he and I weren't like like these best friends close friends you know if, if I'm even taking it further back a lot of uh, part of his problem too, like leading up to this, you know, the ultimate, you know, tragic ending was he had a friend of his that he was close with committed suicide, and that person was actually in our battalion as well, and he died. I actually found out about his death on my second deployment early on in 2019, like I think September or October. Oh um, my
0: god! And yeah,
1: no, it really was. It was a really crazy string in six months where a lot of crazy things were happening, and. I only found out about it because, you know, the guy that I was with, I'm like, you know, hey, man, you all right? Because, I mean, his personality was a little bit more upbeat and jovial and just something seemed off about him. So I was like, hey, are you good, man? And he's like, yeah, I'm good, man. And then he kind of opened up to me about what was going on. Like he said, he didn't want to he found out about it, like, you know, the day before. And I was like, oh, my God. And again, I wasn't close with this individual either. But, you know, I knew who he was. Like I interacted with him. I I knew his face. And it's,
0: it's, you know, I think. When it comes to a death, regardless of whether it was an, an a tragic accident, whether it was a suicide, whether it was overseas, whether it was in a combat zone, I think when you hear the word a Marine has been killed or a Marine has died, it affects all of us, you know, whether like, I mean, I was affected by those by those Marines killed in Kabul and never served with them, never met them. But it's just, you know, it's just as hurtful. And you, though, even though you didn't have a personal relationship, like you were still there in that same environment. So I'm sure that had to have, you know, been definitely more of a shock level, but a little bit more than that, a little bit more intense than just like me, you know, as a veteran, like reading this in the news, like, oh, my God, this is horrible, this is tragic. But you who actually worked with these individuals, like it must have been very different.
1: It was. I mean, it's one, it's just at the end of the day, whether you, you you knew the person or not, when you're thinking about, you know, basically a kid, you know, because the one who committed suicide, he was like 20 years old. I mean, he was, you know, barely old enough uh, to even drink.
0: Oh God, and you're just,
1: let, you're just you're letting it wrap around your head that, you know, a person you knew interacted with, or at least, you know, Marines on your plato- yeah. Marines in your platoon that you were in charge of were friends with him. You know, that's tough to hear. And then obviously, you know, with James passing, it's like, oh my God, like this is, you know, this is a person you knew. This is a person that you you know, smoked cigarettes with in, in this, in the smoke pit together and just small talked on like a work day. And now that person's just, you're just never going to see that person again for the rest of your life. So it's, yeah. it is, and, and it hits in a lot of different ways. And, you know, think speaking of the, the Kabul airport thing, another crazy thing is, um, if anyone remembers the names, uh, her name was Sergeant Rosario. Uh, first name was Johanna. She was, uh, she was in my MCT platoon um, when I was in, uh, yeah, when I was an in MCT in 2015 and I mean, again, I didn't have like a personal relationship with her. I mean, the small interactions here and there through maybe social media or something like I remember I asked her, like, did she reenlist? Cause I knew she had a four-year contract and I saw that she was still in and we just caught up that way. And then when I saw, when they released the names, I'm like, wait a second, Rosario, that's ringing a bell. I mean, I get it. There's probably a lot of Rosarios, but then when they, they released pictures, I was like, oh my God, there's like no way. So like, it's just so it is i mean it's obviously it's sad but sometimes it's hard to even process like even with james's death like it took uh, i remember you know i'm not someone who cries or anything or showcases that like i think that's something you know i like to be private about but i kind of remember just driving to like the px like either that night or the night after and i kind of got like you know a little bit watery eyed i was like really thinking like like i don't know i just didn't like i guess because of the events and like you you felt like you could have done more or you could have been there in a different way maybe things could have changed or been different um the reality was, I mean, then the, the night it happened, he was hanging out with a uh, an unidentified group of Marines. When I say that, I just don't know who they were. I and I think it was a mixture of some Marines from other units in our unit. And uh, they had been drinking, I guess. And obviously with COVID, nobody could you know go anywhere. So I guess they were somewhere either in our barracks buildings or they were somewhere else. And I guess he was really drunk and they just dropped him off in his room. And uh, yeah, obviously that's that's what ended up happening. He didn't have a roommate either. So that was like another thing that was a big, huge thing in our battalion. Of course, they, they used that to be more stringent on the barracks life rather than try to make it about James, which that's, that was like part of the reason I think a lot of people got very detested with our command. They, I'm, I'm not going to go any further into it. Cause obviously, you know, if they're listening, I'm not trying to ruffle any feathers, but again, it was interesting to see the kind of priorities that were lined out after his passing. So yeah, it's uh it was a tough one.
0: Can't even imagine. I think, we all process the death of someone we know a little differently. And I think also with that process hits a little different um, for everyone, right? So back to when you started your bike ride, did you let the his family know that this is what you were doing?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the way it worked out, like after I kind of had the idea, right? The idea was just in my head. I was like, okay, maybe this could work out. Could I do this? I'm going through all the what if scenarios, like, you know, and the first thing I thought of was, okay, okay, there's no way I can do this without either bringing it to social media. Because of course, you know, you want to create exposure, you want to have a message, you want to try to have some kind of impact. So social media is usually, you know, the most direct way to do that. But I was like, okay, there's no way I can use his name and his, you know, his his legacy without talking to the family. So I reached out <clears throat> to some friends that were a lot closer to him that I was pretty close with and said, Hey, you know, I have this idea. I know it's going to sound really random and a little bit out there, but I'm thinking about kind of you know, recreating his legacy a little bit. And I, I wanted to tie like a mental health message message with it, not just, you know, as a buzzword, but truthfully, you know, cause I feel like we hear mental health awareness, but then when we hear about a story about, you know, how that related to mental health awareness, it kind of creates a new, um, meaning to the word and what it really means and what it looks like, you know, and, and sometimes in, in the more worse ways, so I reached out to them and I only told a few people at first, I was like, Hey, just keep this on the hush. You know, don't tell anybody, especially cause I just don't want it to go around yet. Of course, I don't want to have an idea out there that I'm not even committed to yet. So long story short, I got a number. I got his mom's number, um, through one of my close friends that was really close with James and his mom. And I just took the gamble. You know, I reached out to her on Facebook at first and I said, Hey, I'm Nick. You know, I'm, I was actually, I knew James, we were in the same unit, whatever. We were friends Um, and I asked if she, you know, would take a phone call. We took the phone call. Um, to be honest with you, super receptive. There wasn't even any weird, anything. There was no like tension. There was no anything. There was no even thought of like, Oh, why are you doing this? What are you trying to do? Like she was actually almost grateful, almost thankful. And we actually became super close, um, through the whole process of that, of doing this. And so once I kind of got with his mom, that's when we got more serious. Then we tried to figure out, okay, what are we trying to accomplish? What are we looking at doing? Who are we looking at reaching? Do we want to do with a charity? Like, what are we trying to do? And that, that was like the next two to three months of planning. Um, and then we finally found a charity with Wounded Warrior Project. I reached out to them. They linked me with one of their PR people. We had a couple of Zoom meetings and phone calls before everything happened Obviously I had to get a bike and I know that sounds ironic, right? Of course you need a bicycle, <laughs> but you know, all, it's crazy. Even during COVID, like you couldn't get anything. Like even bicycles, since this whole supply chain thing was crazy, all these parts and, and pieces are coming from China mostly. So all the bike manufacturers are short on parts. They're short on labor. They're short on everything. So finding a bike was actually a challenge. So I ended up finally getting a bike at the end of March, I think, or early April, so I only had about two months on the bikes, on the bicycle I used to train for the cross country ride. And then once I had the bike, you know, I still didn't want to say anything yet publicly until I was like, okay, we have set dates, we have plane tickets, we have a route, we have everything figured out. And I think about two to weeks before I started, that's when I came out with it. And that was, uh, I think around early June, I finally said something. So it's, I guess it's cool to see the progression of, you know, a thought to a thing, you know, to an actual yeah. idea that has organization and structure. And to be honest, um, James's mom, her name is Kelly. Uh, if she's listening to this, you know, Hey Kelly. Um, but, uh, she really became like kind of a second mom too, in a way. I mean, she really is like so sweet, like more than I kind of imagined because of how like hands-on she wanted to be and how supportive she was. And, you know, I'm not gonna lie. I call her a lot actually on the ride to mostly complain about stuff like, <laughs> Oh, it's super hot. This ride sucks. I hate Kansas. You know, these were like, Yeah. I mean, that's going to be my, my, you can, if I could send you a couple of links to a couple of videos, I I said to multiple news stations, how much I did not like Kansas. Kansas was uh, a really awful state to bike through. Um, um, you know, to be honest, it's because the, it's kind of like a phenomenon in Kansas, you know, the winds are coming from the Gulf of Mexico. So they're like this crazy South to North wind. And when I say wind, I'm not talking like five, 10 miles an hour. It's like a sustained 15 to like 35 miles per hour of wind constantly and it's kansas has no trees there's nothing it's very flat and it's mostly farms and there's i'm not joking there's no trees and you're just getting pounded with headwinds or side winds the entire time because that was going west to east and even if you were going east to west wouldn't matter so you know psychologically when you're pedaling a bicycle and mother nature is you know throwing you know sustained 25 mile per hour winds at your at your side you're going slower you're working harder to go the same distance it's actually kind of a beat down psychologically cuz it's it's terrible actually. I really didn't like Kansas and there was just nothing there. There's nothing to look at, you know, the terrain's <laughs> not it's it's kind of like being hypnotized cuz like I remember actually crossing into the into Kansas state line and I was on the same road for 130 miles. Like I literally didn't get off a road for 130 miles. Wow. Um, so it was just like and it was really hot too i mean oh my goodness it was like i think it was probably almost august when i was getting there so it was so just you know,
0: where did you where did you start Where was your starting point
1: the starting point was actually tillamook oregon which was right by the coast anyone familiar with that area it's pretty close to rockaway beach and i actually rockaway beach was where i touched my bicycle tires into the water there cuz i wanted to have like a pacific to atlantic ocean type of you know journey so i st- I, I pushed I my like bike it. Into, yeah i pushed my bike into the water in Rockaway beach. And then I, I made it official from Tillamook because the bike shop I used was in Tillamook, but I had an Airbnb for two nights in, in Rockaway beach. And then I pedaled to Tillamook and we made sure everything was tight and ready to go. And then we, you know, we called it official. It was uh, June 25th when I actually made the official start.
0: And how long was the entire journey for you? It was, along?
1: um, it was, uh, 77 total days, 60 days of pedaling, um and it was 3900 and i think 87 miles total in uh, over 14 states
0: so where was the end point
1: the end point was actually it was a little bit arbitrary um it was weird i was actually following the trans america trail and anyone familiar with that that actually starts in Astoria Oregon and ends in Yorktown Virginia but because of james's hometown being in glenside Pennsylvania which was just north of philadelphia and where i'm from being in south jersey I kind of adjusted my route. So around Kentucky, I actually started heading up north into uh, Ohio, and then I cut east across Ohio into West Virginia, into Pennsylvania. Um, my endpoint was actually um, Graveling Rock Beach, which was in Tuckerton, New Jersey. So that was kind of where I ended it. It's funny, I wanted to end it in Brigantine Beach, but anyone familiar with the area, there's a massive bay that's between Tuckerton and Brigantine. So just because that was my last day, um, I was I'm not going to lie to you by that point of the journey, I was pretty much done. Like I was actually like very much looking forward to just calling it because James's celebration of life was actually September 4th. That was how we had it organized. I I did that because it was a long weekend and I knew any of his Marine friends that could make it if they were in the area, they had a long weekend and everyone even working had a long weekend. So we kind of just, I kind of just unofficially chose that weekend. And that was dangerous by the way, choosing a weekend before you start the ride. That was like, I don't know. That was one thing I did that was really not that smart. I mean, I guess it was good. It kept me on a timeline, but it was a little bit stressful. Like, you know, it was like, oh my God, I'm not gonna lie. I remember I I was in Montana and it was like mid July. And I was like, okay, we're still like 3000 miles away from Pennsylvania. Like, how the hell am I going to get across? I just (laughs) started doing way more miles and having way less rest days. So, oh, no. yeah. So it, it ended in New Jersey, but with James's like celebration of life happening on the 4th of September, that was kind of like the culmination of the ride and the way the Wounded Warrior Project did it. That was like their way. That was how they kind of ended the ride and everything with us. So at that point after that, it was kind of on my own time and I kind of dragged it out, obviously. I mean, I could have finished to the coast of New Jersey from Glenside the next day. It was only like 60, 70 miles to the, co- to the coast, but I kind of stretched it out and I visited some family and went all the way back up to Sandy Hook and came all the way down. And then, yeah, once I ended it, you know, that was it.
0: What was some of the biggest challenges that you faced during the bike ride?
1: Um, you know, to be honest with you, just the monotony. I mean, you know, obviously, uh, when you're looking at social media posts or you're looking at like Instagram reels, because I tried to make like decent content while I was on the ride. One, I wanted to show people like I was actually doing this. I wasn't just asking for support or financial support or whatever, you know, you to support the charity you know, without me, without showcasing, I'm actually doing the rides. Like I even tracked on my rides on Strava and I would post virtually every single ride to up, up through Strava onto Instagram so people could see that the rides were getting done and could kind of follow along if they wanted to. Um, I mean, just really, like I said, the challenging part was just the monotony. I mean, you know, it's like a large majority of these States that you go through that you think are gorgeous, like Oregon, um, Colorado, Wyoming, you know, you'd be surprised two thirds of most of those states, like especially Oregon, Idaho, Colorado, Wyoming, they're like high desert terrain. Like in other words, there's no trees, there's just mountains, but it's high desert. It's dry. It's there's nothing. It's farmland. I mean, it's literally just like that for hundreds and hundreds of miles and just the monotony of it sometimes. And I'm not going to lie. There's just the days with like the oppressive heat That's just like, oh, this sucks. Like, what am I really doing? Or just when silly things would happen, like, you know, I I got a flat tire in Kansas and I was kinda ticked, and I'll be honest, anyone from Kentucky, that's another terrible state to be from. It's (laughs) so it's so ridiculously humid in that state. It's like breathing in water in that state. That was Well, you also
0: went in the summertime, didn't you?
1: I know, but you know, it's funny, like, you know, really in terms of like the most oppressive heat was probably Kentucky just because of the humidity. I mean, I caught a couple of heat waves. So obviously it's more hot, but like, it wasn't that bad in Wyoming and Colorado, if anything with Colorado, with the altitude, because at the highest I was at like 11,400 feet. So when you start approaching like, you know, the seven to 12,000 altitude range, it's significantly cooler than it is like in Kansas because of how flat it is. I mean, when well,
0: that was, makes
1: sense. Yeah, yeah. Like when I was in Breckenridge, which was pretty much the town before I got to the highest point of the ride. You know, it was like in the sixties. I mean, literally, it was like in the sixties. It was like gorgeous up there. And then as soon as I came down and I went through the rest of Colorado, which here is another thing about the, the ride: Eastern Colorado is the most deserted place in in, the, in America. There is nothing. Like you go to you get to this town called Pueblo City. That's shortly after you cross the Continental Divide. There is nothing. For the rest of the way, it's almost sad actually and kind of scary. It's like these are like the hills have eyes towns. This is what, what oh. i really, yeah. It's no, it's very freaky. Well, it's almost crazy. Speaking
0: of which, did you ever feel like scared or on edge or anything like that during the ride?
1: Yeah, I did because, like I said, I was kind of starting off really slow, and and honestly, a lot of it was because I caught a really bad heat wave like in the first week of the ride. And that really slowed me down. Like heat fatigue is a real thing. Like, you know, every day being out there, like it's crazy. Like you just get tired for no reason. Your brain honestly gets kind of slow too. Like I feel like I wasn't really thinking as much. I was just like pedaling and thinking about food or water or when I can sit down or something. Um, but the times were the most freaky were, um as i was really picking up my mileage towards the back end of the, like the last like 40 days of my ride i had multiple days where i was pedaling into the night i think the latest i had was like almost midnight and i'll be honest with you like it was actually in eastern colorado when i was pedaling until about almost midnight i was staying i was going to be staying at a church um they you know i called ahead and they were going to let me stay there but it was freaky you know it was in a really small town there was nothing there the, the ride there, there was like 30 miles of nothing before you actually got there. It was called like Shredian Lake, I think, Colorado. And, um, yeah, it's just super dark. It's freaky too. Cause like, you know, all these houses are like desolate and empty and, you know, granted most of it's farmland, but there's something creepy about having a light on your head and uh. constantly <laughs> corn stalks. No, seriously. It, it's, it, it's, no, creepy. I just
0: it, got chills, it, it,
1: <laughs> yeah. but it's real though. I mean, I'm telling people right now, like that's a lot, a lot of bikers. If you talk to them, don't ride at night. I mean, it's one, it's for safety because, you know, cars are less likely to see you right, even with right. lights on. Um, and it's crazy, too. You know, when you're pedaling at night, I mean, my God, at least the uh, the big, you know, 18-wheeler guys, the trucker guys, you can see those trucks from a mile and a half away. It's That's crazy true. how lit up they are. But it's crazy. They're so blinding in the middle of the night. And then it's, it goes from super light to super dark. I don't know definitely just the pedaling at night was the freakiest, um, by far just, you know, rolling into a town on a bicycle alone at like ten thirty, eleven o'clock at night. It's just, it's, it's freaky.
0: <laughs> I bet. Yeah. So if there was like one thing that you would change during this ride, what would it be?
1: Uh, one thing I would have changed if I were to do it again. Um, you know, I mean, as cheesy as it sounds, I mean, I think other than maybe sticking to more of a schedule and waking up earlier in the day and finishing my days earlier, definitely would have been that. I guess if I were to do it again, I would have just picked better places to have rest days. Uh, a lot of the days where I did take rest days were in towns where there was like nothing to do or there was nothing literally at all. So I kind of wish I planned it out better to where I could have went somewhere like Breckenridge, Colorado was a great example. That's like a beautiful area in Colorado. And I wish I had a couple of rest days there. But I mean really there's nothing it's actually on weird. my
0: bucket list i want to go there
1: you got to check it out i mean sadly uh the price to live there is insane it's like four thousand dollars to rent and like eight thousand dollars to rent a house there it's and the prices are insane but it's beautiful to visit absolutely beautiful yeah, um
0: well, i'll check it out
1: but um <laughs> no there's really nothing i would change i think uh, you know for for as little experience as i had and as, and as well as everything really went out in the end there's really nothing I would have changed again, just sticking to a schedule. So I didn't actually have to pedal till 12 at night or, you know, that's probably the only thing I would have changed.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. Especially the safety, safety reasons for sure. And so once you, you know, you completed this journey of yours and you get to your final destination, how was that? How is crossing that finish line? And you know, you're done, done. Like, how was that feeling?
1: It's weird. It's kind of happened twice, you know. So with uh, James's celebration of life, it was very organized. So like, you know, the VFW in his hometown let us use their venue and they had a pretty big venue. They had a big piece of property. It was really nice. Um, Obviously, Wounded Warrior people were there. They sent out a spokesperson, uh, the PR guy that was working with me the whole way, like kind of orchestrating all the news interviews. He was there. Um, obviously James's mom was there with a lot of her family. I actually, a lot of Marines came out a lot more than I thought were going to come out both, you know, whether they were veteran or active or even, you know, some of the older old timers were there. A lot of VFW people were there. Um, a lot of his friends from high school were there. So funny, everything was really organized, right? They wanted me to kind of like have that moment where I'm kind of pulling into the VFW on September 4th. like, And I was actually riding from Philadelphia. I only had like a 15 mile ride that day because everything was actually planned out well And when I got in, it was crazy. Like, I mean, everything happened fast. I mean, there was clapping. There was actually a huge welcome home Nick sign, um, you know, and everyone was asking me a million questions. I mean, the entire day. And then we actually had um, a a congresswoman from Pennsylvania actually came out and gave a a citation for James. And it was like this whole thing. It really was a, a beautiful event that we had and people could pay their respects and kind of also it'd be an upbeat type of event. So when I finished, it didn't really hit me until a couple of days later that I was like, wow, you know, this whole thing that we were working towards and this whole goal, this timeline, like that was it. And then when I finished the ride, to be honest, you know, it's like the post trip blues. Like I was like, what is my purpose now? You know, that I was focused, so focused on this one thing and completing it and, you know, getting this message out here. And, you know, even Kelly, you know, she was telling me like, this kind of helped her get through her grieving stage because she had this like kind of positive thing to, to work towards. And she got to like relive James in a different way. It wasn't like, Oh, he's passed Mm -hmm. away and not with us. It's more like I got to relive James through all of his friends. You know, the whole story of what we were trying to tell, tell people, And she got something out of that, probably more so than anybody, if I'm being honest.
0: I want to thank you for sharing your story and sharing your journey with me. How much money did you end up raising for all these organizations?
1: So across the board, it was a little bit, there was a little bit everywhere. So I had a main GoFundMe that actually is still active. I'm actually probably going to close it out here in a few days. Um, And then we had another fundraising campaign with Wounded Warrior. So Wounded Warrior had like their own fundraising, like web page through their website, because the way they worked they won't like promote third-party stuff like GoFundMe. Oh, I see.
0: That yeah, and,
1: and, and we kind of organized it from the beginning to give like a 50-50 split between the family and Wounded Warrior. So I had a, a page through them that's, I think, now closed. And then I still have the GoFundMe that's on my Instagram page and Facebook active. And then we had, between those two, and then we actually had monetary donations the day of the actual event. Like you know, you know, some of the older folks, you know, they're not using the internet or Facebook. You know, they just wanted to come there and drop off a check right. or money or whatever. Uh, across the board, I think it was between the range of twelve to thirteen thousand. It's just hard because I don't have the exact number for the day of the event. But between my GoFundMe, it's a little under, it's a little over seven grand. I had actually I had an initial GoFundMe in the beginning uh, that I opened. Two weeks before I started, because I, you know, I, again, I didn't want to collect anyone. I didn't want to collect donations without like people saying, oh, this is real. Like the bike is actually right, sitting right, 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 right. waiting for me to start. Uh, we raised three thousand on that within like a couple days. That was actually what was amazing. And you know, I didn't realize people would be that, you know, receptive to what I was doing. But we ended up having to close that one because you know it's, it was just complications with Wounded Warrior and they weren't able to split the proceeds. So that all went to them. And then I started a separate one. So that was 10 grand between the two GoFundMes. I think it was about 1,500 for the one on their page. And then I believe the monetary donations were somewhere around like maybe 1,000 to 1,500. So I mean, all in all, we're talking like a 12 to $13,000 uh, range, which was pretty amazing. I mean, yeah, I that's thought,
0: amazing. Yeah, that is so amazing.
1: Uh, it's because
0: Like, think about it, like you fresh, you know, just graduated boot camp. Did you think that all these years later you would be doing this, this right across America and raising money for these incredible organizations that help veterans so much?
1: I mean, you know, and that's the thing, too. You know, it's funny, like when you're a Marine, like active duty and you're maybe like me, I was a little bit of a Debbie Downer while I was in for several years, you know, and to think all the growth that happened in in the five years time frame, all these friends that I had, these experiences that I had. And then even thinking like, you know, a year later from when I got out, did I ever think, you know, this was going to be the reality I'd be looking back on a year later? No, not at all. And honestly, in a lot of ways, you know, as bad as it was, sometimes I only have the Marine Corps to thank, you know, and the Marines that I met. That's, I think, what's kind of amazing about being, you know, a Marine for life, I guess you could say. And even you and I, like, you know, we just have this connection without maybe ever meeting. But because we're Marines, we just share the same struggle, the same, you know, views on so many things. And that's, again, just the amazing part about being a Marine.
0: And so what are you up to now, now that you're done with the bike?
1: Now that I'm done with the bike, you know, that's like I said earlier, you know, you definitely had, I'm kind of over it now, right? Because life is like now kind of back to normal. I actually was kind of sad the first couple of weeks when I finished, right? Because I just hadn't like, what am I doing now with my life? And, um, you know, I was in school full time. So I'm in school full time right now my intended major is going to be economics. Um, My goal is um, to get into one of the Ivy League schools next fall for economics, just because it's, it is a broad major. So I wanted to go somewhere that has a really good name and a really good um, education. And, you know, if any veterans are listening to this or even active duty, um, look at services to school. It's a great nonprofit that does help, you know, veterans get into schools that would Normally, be harder to get into due to the you know nature of some of these you know. Um, higher level schools. I have
0: never heard of this nonprofit. What is it called again?
1: Right, right. right. Get a pen and paper down. It's called um, just services to school. I don't know if it's services with the letter a number two or the spelled out version, but you can find it on Instagram. Um, they, they, it's, it's pretty obvious. I can actually send it to you on Instagram if you want to share it to some of your followers. Okay, services so it's service,
0: school. service to school, service the number two school dot org.
1: Yeah, that's probably a, yeah, services to school. It's a it's plural on the first one services to school. It's a it's a nonprofit, and the way it works is at least from the you know experience I have to this point. I mean, again, I'm not even at a point where I'm applying yet, but um, I will be applying in March of 2022 to for the fall of 2022. Um, they pair you with like an ambassador, you go through a whole process, you write like a resume, an essay, and they kind of help you. I think the biggest perk to it, too, if anyone who's applied to schools knows that no application is not applying to schools is not even free anymore. And I think, especially with the Ivy league schools, like you apply to Stanford, it's $200 to just put your application in. And I think they waive them or pay for them. So it's one of the two. Um, so yeah, services school, it's a great tool. And I got paired with a really good guy. He, I think he was an air force veteran, um, and he got into Stanford as well and then went to Yale. So he's been around the block and just like, you know, having that value of someone who knows what they're talking about and oh, knows totally. I, I will
0: definitely link that website on the show notes when this definitely. episode gets published. Um, that's a that's a great like I, I learned something new. <laughs> you know, that's I didn't know, I it's, already it's know about this nonprofit. Yeah, and it, and it, I'm it, always it, looking yeah. for nonprofits that like help veterans like that. So thank you for sharing that.
1: No problem. No problem.
0: Thank you so much for being a guest in the podcast, for sharing your story, for sharing uh, you know. <sighs> why you did this and you know what a truly beautiful way to honor the memory of corporal james curry and i always wrap up my interviews talking about food okay because i'm latina and that's part of the culture
1: oh i love so the food.
0: my question is what is your favorite food food uh, snack man. home dish
1: uh man my favorite food i mean it might sound pretty um basic or ironic being from jersey but i gotta say the pizza in jersey is excellent i mean now having been to multiple states and trying their pizza it's very different um in, on in the northeast than it is in kansas uh, or montana
0: it's
1: uh, where where you're from well you're from new york okay that's i grew up well, i
0: grew up in queens
1: okay so, so. The, that's the northeast though so your pizza passes too but i I'd still say like man if you go to the boardwalk in the summer there's a place called i think it's called mac and mangoes. Now it's just called mangoes. I think it was like a brother thing, but I guess they split their pizza. I still remember it, you know, from years ago. That was like the best pizza I ever I had. I mean, I'm
0: still going to try it because I
1: I'm a huge pizza snob, honestly, because I've had, I had so much pizza on the ride that was like Chuck E. Cheese <laughs> pizza, and they're charging like $25 because it's like a niche dish in like Montana. And I'm like, oh, really wow. guys, pizza not that hard to make. It's in it's in Wildwood, New Jersey, just so you know.
0: Wildwood, New Jersey, mangoes. I love mangoes, so that's gonna be a very easy thing to remember for me. Awesome. Well, Nick, again, I just want to thank you for taking the time, you know, sharing your story, and I definitely hope to hear from you soon.
1: Absolutely, and thank you so much for having me as a guest.
0: The Latina She Surf podcast has teamed up with Art Peruque a dance fitness studio located in the United Kingdom who offers virtual classes. So no matter where you are in the world, you can dance with them. They offer Peruvian folkloric dance classes that are representative of the three regions of Peru, the coast, the mountains, and the jungle. They take you on a journey through the culture and history of Peru through several detailed choreographies. I stumbled upon them during the 2020 pandemic lockdown. I have danced Peruvian folk dance since I was a teen, and through their virtual classes, I was able to reconnect with my cultural roots again. Use the code LATINASCHESERVED to get 10% off their fitness packages.